If I were to say circus juggler, what comes to mind? Probably for most of us, the image that comes to mind is that character riding on a unicycle with the afro wig, the clown nose, juggling something, balls, plates, fiery torches, something like that. So why in the world am I bringing this up? I think a lot of us can relate with this character. And I know I can. We go through life juggling, multitasking a million things all at once. And just when we think we have it under control, something else gets added and something else gets added. The things that you think you had under control begin going out of control. Those plates begin dropping. Those fiery torches that you were juggling, you've dropped them all and now you're surrounded by a blazing inferno. But it's fine. We're good. And it's in these moments when we feel so overwhelmed by the stress of the things going on around us, the expectations that others have put on us, and the pressure we've put on ourselves, that we find ourselves at the end of our rope and we begin to crack physically, emotionally. We find ourselves drained spiritually even. And it's in moments like this that Satan loves to come in. He's opportunistic like that. He loves to come in and to kick us while we are down. While we're there struggling, this is when he loves to jump in with his lies and with his attacks. And we feel like there's no escape. So today we're going to look at a few of the lies that Satan tells us. The first lie we'll look at today is the most foundational lie. It is the Genesis lie of did God really say? Did God really mean what he said in his word? We see this in our culture today in what we know as progressive Christianity, uh, a Christianity that says they follow the God of the Bible but yet rejects much of what the God of the Bible says in his word, much of what is written in the Torah, what Yeshua himself said. Discussing topics such as abortion, homosexuality, transgender, and critical race theory, and evolution, all of these topics that they've now replaced our own worldview and force it into the scripture. We cherry pick to make the Bible say what we want it to say. And if we come across a verse that's a bit uncomfortable, well, did God really say? As we go through our walk with the Lord, many of us came to the understanding, we were revealed by the Father, the beauty of his Torah, the beauty of keeping his festivals because they all point to Yeshua, they all point towards Jesus, walking in the Sabbath and all these different wonderful things as revealed in God's Torah, his law. And as we did so, we probably had the same thought or the same question asked to us. Did, did God really say that you have to keep these laws today? That it's, you know, did God really mean for you to keep the Sabbath? Or even as we're walking with the Lord and we're reading the gospels and we're saying, wow, I'm seeing how Yeshua prayed for the sick. He walked in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, walking in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want to walk like Yeshua walked. There will be those who come to us and say, did God really mean for you to walk like that? That was just for the disciples back then. That's not for today. Did God really say for you to do it today? And even as we begin to believe these lies or hear these lies, these questions that, that sow seeds of doubt, did God really say, we begin to question, did God really mean what he said in his word about who we are? 
what my identity is, what our purpose is, what our calling is? Or can I really believe what God said in his word about who he is? About his character, about his promises? Can I trust God? As it says in Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. The next lie we're going to look at today is this. You are not good enough. You are not valuable to God. Imagine you are in a war-torn country, right? Food and water is super scarce, but you find someone who has found fresh water and they're willing to sell you some of that fresh water. How much would you be willing to pay? Everything you have. Because value is determined by how much you are willing to pay. But unlike that water that was just scarce, you are not just scarce or a limited addition. You are an only addition. In fact, you are so valuable. God valued you so much. He died on your behalf, sent his son, Messiah, to be crucified, to take the punishment of your sin upon himself and to then rise from the dead so that you can also walk in life and in freedom. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against him, Messiah died for us. If we look through the pages of scripture, we'll see stories of incredible men and women that God chose to fulfill his purposes. But as we look through these stories, we'll notice a trend. And this trend is that God had a thing with choosing people who were unqualified, who might not have been the person you would choose for your team. But God says, yep, that's the one. We have the example of Moses. Moses was concerned about his speaking abilities, whatever that might have been. Maybe he had a stutter, like some believe. Maybe he was just scared of speaking in public. But yet, God chose to use Moses in an incredible and a powerful way. Another example is the disciples. You know, of all the people that a famous rabbi, a famous teacher would choose, and not just any famous rabbi or teacher, but the Son of God, the Messiah, prophesied through the entirety of Scripture of all the people he would choose. Why fishermen, right? These would be the ones to inscribe and to write down the words and the actions of the Messiah so that those in that period and also into our time, into the future, can read what happens, what Messiah did, right? Why did he choose fishermen? Those are the most unqualified of the unqualified. But that was the point. It's because when we realize we're not enough in our own flesh, in ourselves, right? We're not puffed up with how good we are, how smart we are, how capable we are. When we realize, whoa, <laughs> I, 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 I need help here. That's when God can actually work through us more powerfully because it's not us working anymore, right? It's not our own flesh, it's Him and His Holy Spirit working through us. And in the end, He's the one who gets the glory. You know, actually when I was a child, you know, speaking of all this, I had a speech impediment. I struggled with saying my R's and I tended to slur my words and I was afraid of speaking in public, like incredibly afraid of speaking in public. Um, so much so that when I was in college and I had to take my speech 
right, my public speaking course, I found a way to take it online <laughs> because yeah, yes, there is a way to do that. <laughs> but ironically now here that I am, God can use anyone if you make yourself available, even in the midst of your weaknesses, because as scripture says, in our weakness, he is strong. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not by our own might, our own abilities, our own knowledge, right, intelligence, our own beauty or physical looks. In the end, it is by his spirit, says the Lord. As scripture says, we are not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Remembering that you are a son and a daughter of the king, given a powerful and amazing purpose and calling to spread his kingdom. And if that is the calling the king has given you, he will enable you to do this when you seek his face. As it says in Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive a spirit of bondage that returns you to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The third lie we'll look at today is this. The wilderness you're going through is all for nothing. God has forgotten you. We have the story of Joseph in the Bible, right? He was the favorite son and then his life gets turned upside down. He gets betrayed by his brothers. The people who should be loving and protecting him, he gets thrown into a cistern, sold as a slave, falsely accused, thrown into prison. And then even in prison, he has to be the bearer of bad tidings to the baker who then, well, we know what happens to him. A lot of horrible things happen. It's a wilderness of years, right? In this entire time frame, Joseph probably asked himself, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? But we know in the story of Joseph, he chose to trust the father. Instead of turning his back on the father and saying, I don't see you. So because I don't see you in this moment, in this dark place, you must not be here. Instead, Joseph said, I trust you. I trust your purposes, that you have not forgotten me, that even though I can't see you right now, you are with me. And because of this, God raised him up. God brought to fulfillment the promises he had given to Joseph as a child, the dreams and the visions that he had given because Joseph trusted in God. He did not give up hope even when life seemed hopeless. Joseph suffered loss, betrayal, heartache, being used and abused, being falsely accused and yet waiting on God. We also live in a world that is broken, a world full of sin, right? As the Bible says, creation groans. A world where sinful people make sinful choices. A world where sin has also created disease and illness, even death. But yet even in the midst of this, as it says in scripture, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Isaiah 49, 15. 
We have the example of Psalm 23, which most of us probably have memorized. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters, right? This beautiful Psalm. But many of us probably have in our mind's eye, this sort of children's Bible illustration of this Psalm, this beautiful rolling green hills, fruit trees, birds singing, rainbows, unicorns. You know, it's, <laughs> it all seems perfect, right? But yet that is not the reality that was in Israel when David wrote this Psalm. Israel is a dry place. There's a lot of dry, rocky, mountainous regions. And so what the shepherd would do is he would take his sheep to a place where there was sustenance, where there was water for them to eat, for them to drink and to be filled. But as the food began to diminish, right? As they began to eat the things up and drink the water, as it began to diminish, the shepherd would have to move his sheep to find the next place of sustenance. And to do so, he would have to lead the sheep away from where they had gotten comfortable and to follow him over dry, rocky grounds as he led them to the next place. But in the meantime, they had to trust, the sheep had to trust the shepherd that he knew what he was doing. Why are we leaving the place that had water where I had gotten comfortable? Why are we now walking on this dry earth where there's rocks, there's thorns and thistles? What are you doing? But the shepherd can see further than the sheep. One of my favorite verses in scripture is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. The fourth lie we come across is the lie of, you've messed up too much. You are too far gone. God cannot forgive you. God will not forgive you. You can almost hear Satan say, you've messed up too much. You might as well go hide in the bushes. There's no hope for you. But yet, meanwhile, God is walking through the garden saying, Epho ata, where are you? Like he said to Adam and to Eve. And all that you are required to do is to simply say, Hanani, here I am. Here I am in my mess. But here I am. As Paul talks about, when we are running the race, we will all fall down. We will all stumble, but the key is that you don't stay down. You get back up and you finish the race. One of the key ways to do this is going to the Father, going prostrate on the ground, asking Him to reveal if there's any triggers that you've allowed into your life, into your home, that cause you to stumble, that open up doors to the enemy that should not be. Ask him what these are and then get rid of them. Get rid of anything that would be a temptation. It's not enough just to, to avoid the sin. You have to hate the sin. Something I've also found that's helpful is to put scripture around your home, like battle verses, verses that you need to read when you are faced with a dart from the enemy, a dart of temptation, when that attack, when that lie comes in. Have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, ready. Have an accountability partner or a few who are mature in their faith, who would be there to pray with you, to give you words of life and encouragement, and to give you a hard word of truth when you need to hear it. 
because that is what true love is, to be there, even when it's uncomfortable, but to help you walk in freedom. Get in the scripture, know the Father's word, know his voice, spend intimate time with him. Go on a walk in nature. But the key thing is that as you are in the scripture and you're putting his word into your heart, this is how Yeshua rebuked the enemy. When the enemy came at him in the wilderness, Yeshua didn't say, ah, he rebuked the enemy with the word of God. For it is written, and Satan had to flee. Paul talks about this concept of being a living sacrifice. And he gets this concept from the Ola offerings, which were the whole burnt offerings as given in the Torah. And these Ola, these whole burnt offerings, were offered twice a day. One time in the morning, one time in the evening, every single day. And when Paul talks about this concept of being a living sacrifice, it sounds kind of oxymoronic. How can he be a living dead thing, right? Well, Paul also says we are to crucify our old man. We are to put to death our flesh and that old man, but we are now alive in Messiah. We are a new creation in Christ. So we have to sacrifice, you can say, our flesh, our fleshly desires, just like the Ola offering. We are to offer everything, to fully surrender, because it's only in that that we can actually truly be alive. We often have to do that daily. Even twice a day, like the Ola offerings were given, they were sacrificed twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. To go to the Father and say, Father, use me, cleanse me, Father, forgive me, make me new. I want to serve you, Hineni, here I am. Help me to look more like you. Begin your day, end your day, with making yourself a living sacrifice. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. The fifth lie is this. You're not doing enough for God. You can almost hear Satan whisper in your ear, you need to do more. In fact, you're not worthy or loved in God's sight unless you do enough. And psych, if you do more, I'll still tell you, it's not enough. Now this lie is a tricky lie. Because shouldn't we want to do things for God? Shouldn't we be active, right? Isn't that what obedience is about? Doing things? Well, of course, we know Shema means to hear and to obey, to faith without works is dead. But this lie is that tricky lie that Satan skews. That instead of, because I am approved, I obey, it's not. To get approved, you need to work. You need to do. And in fact, if you don't do enough, you're not approved. You're not worthy. You're not loved. You're not good enough. Perhaps you're not even saved. Reading the parable of the talents used to scare me. I always was afraid of being that servant who buried their talent and was told by the master, be gone. Get out of my sight. I never knew you, you worthless servant. I was afraid that if I wasn't doing what I thought I needed to do for God, my own dreams, my own ideals, my own vision of what it meant to serve God. If I wasn't doing those things, then I wasn't doing enough for God. But that's where I had it wrong. I was trying to do my own, follow my own dreams, my own ideals of what I thought it looked to serve the Father. My heart was in the right place, but that little lie had crept in. Fun fact, sometimes our ideals, our grand ideals of what we want to do for God 
is a little different than what God is actually calling us to do. In this season, perhaps that's for a later season, when you spend that intimate time with him, when you get to know his voice, he will guide your steps. And it's simply having patience and trusting in him, going to him and saying, Father, I desire to be used by you. I desire to be a vessel that you can fill, that you can use for your glory and for your kingdom. So that when he says, yes, that is the door, that is the opportunity I want you to walk through, you can go. When he says, no, that is not the direction I want you to go, that you won't go. We need to stop comparing our journeys and our walks with the Father to those around us. Instead, focus on Yeshua. As Paul talks about, we run the race towards the goal, which is Yeshua. Stop looking towards the other lanes with the other runners and wherever they might be, because that is their walk with the Father. You focus on Yeshua. And don't despise the small things. Don't overlook the small things that God is using for his glory. Every time you spoke a word of encouragement to someone who seemed like they were down, you're doing it for his glory. Every time you, you make a meal for someone who's hungry, for someone who's elderly, you're doing it for his glory. No matter how small, no matter how big it might be, do everything for his glory. And he is well pleased. One example is my mom. She used to want to start or do work in ministry, write books, do all these things, and perhaps one day she'll still write a book. But in the meantime, growing up, I have memories of being stuck at grocery stores for a few hours, one or two or three hours. Why? Because my mom had found someone, some stranger or some employee to pray for, or to witness to, or to encourage, or to counsel. And while she wasn't doing her ideals of what she wanted to do, she was spreading God's kingdom powerfully because she was allowing the Holy Spirit to work through her as a lifestyle. That wherever you go, it's so, you're so full of him that you're overflowing. The next lie is a lie that has silenced more than half of the human population for more than 2,000 years. This is the lie. As a woman, you are not allowed to do ministry. We've even had women reach out to us asking if they can pray over someone because they're not a man. Going back to scripture, we have some of the first examples of evangelists being women. We have in the temple when Yeshua was taken to the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised, a woman, the prophetess Anna, who was there and she met Yeshua. And after she met him, she went around the temple proclaiming, see the salvation that God has brought and is bringing to his people Israel. Then we have the next example, the woman at the well. Yeshua met her there and spoke words of life to her that he is the one who can give living water. He is the Messiah. She goes back to her town proclaiming, the Messiah has come. See what he is doing right now. He is here. And we have the example of Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb, she finds it empty. She finds that Yeshua has arisen from the grave. So she runs back to the disciples to proclaim, look what God has done. Look what has happened, Yeshua is alive. No matter your past or where you have been, God desires to use you. In the case of the prophetess Anna, she lost her husband when she was young. She suffered loss and heartache. 
In the case of the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, she was used and abused. Mary Magdalene, she had been a captive to sin. But yet for each of these women, they became the mouthpiece to proclaim the Messiah had come, to proclaim the coming of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So we see that the prophetess Anna was able to proclaim what God was about to do. The woman at the well proclaimed what God was doing right now and Mary Magdalene was able to say what God had just done, what had just happened. In scripture, we come across this word, diakonos in the Greek, which when used in conjunction with the proper noun is usually translated into the word minister. Now we see this used multiple times in the New Testament in relation to Epaphras, Tychicus, Paul, even Yeshua. The word diakonos, like we have in the English word deacon, is translated to the word minister, except in one instance. When diakonos, in the case of Phoebe, is translated to the word servant. While we know, of course, being a minister is to be a servant as Yeshua exemplified, the choice of words here by the translators is not subtle at all. But the key is this, that Phoebe was a woman and she was a minister of the gospel. The gifts and callings of God have been given to every member of the body of Messiah. Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female slave nor free, for you are all one in Messiah. The same spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you. As a woman, you have a calling, a role, and gifts in which to minister and to serve our King. If you would like to learn more about this topic, I definitely recommend watching a video that my husband PD recently did with David Wilbur, discussing the biblical role of women in the Great Commission. Once Satan has accomplished his goal of getting us to believe lies about ourselves, he is then quick to shift our focus to believing lies about others. Take the second lie. You're not good enough. You're not valuable to God. But now turn it to third person. They're not good enough. They are not valuable to God. While we might not have this line repeating in our minds, it will come out in the way we treat that person. Instead of loving them like Yeshua loves, having patience, having grace as a brother and a sister, even being willing to wash their feet. Instead, the moment we have a grievance or a disagreement, instead of going to that person humbly, privately, as we're required in the biblical protocol according to Matthew 18, we feel it is incumbent upon us to expose them, to publicly slander and to gossip about them, to murder them with our tongues. And we tell ourselves that God condones this because we've believed the lie that they're not valuable to God, that God doesn't care. Take the fourth lie, the lie of you've messed up too much, you're too far gone, God won't forgive you. But now turning it to third person, they've messed up too much, they're too far gone, God won't forgive them. And instead of allowing God to be the righteous and holy judge that he is, we have sat ourselves on his seat. It reminds me of the parable of the unforgiving servant, the servant who was forgiven much, but then yet would not forgive. How often do we demand a higher level and more grace than we are willing to extend to others? Now, of course, forgiving does not necessarily mean forgetting, right? There is wisdom that is also required as in all things, but the way to freedom is in surrender. 
It is laying it down and it is forgiving as Yeshua has forgiven you. Right now in our culture, perhaps more than any other time in history, we've seen an explosion in new diet fads, exercise regimens, uh, healthy eating, clean eating recipes and websites. And it's all good you know, as we've sought to have a cleaner and a healthier lifestyle. And for a lot of us, this means we've maybe chosen to eat more organic foods. Maybe we've even decided to buy our own farm and raise our own chickens. And then as we're walking with the Father, perhaps he's led us to the truth of eating clean according to his word. The animals that he has called clean and acceptable for us to eat and the ones he has called unclean that are an abomination that are not to be eaten. In the end, we do all this because we desire to honor God and we desire to honor our temples, both biblically and holistically. And this is all great. So why am I talking about this? The reason why is because sometimes in our pursuit of having a cleaner lifestyle, we have overlooked a weightier matter. And that is having a clean heart style. Psalm 51.10, create in me a tahor heart, O God. Tahor in Hebrew means clean or pure. This leads us to the final lie of Satan that I'll address today. And this lie is this. You don't have to address any of the lies, any of the sins that are in your life. So long as you look clean, as you look good on the outside. I have met many people who are zealous and passionate about walking in obedience to God's Torah and who are trying to do the best they can at having a clean lifestyle, eating organically and doing these things which are all good, but in their pursuit of doing this have overlooked the weightier matter. And that is having a clean heart style. That they have believed the lie of the enemy that so long as they can look good on the outside, if they take care of their physical body, that they do not have to address. They can overlook the secret sins in their heart. The secret sins of pride, of self-righteousness, of lust, of bitterness. All of these things that are like a cancer and will destroy. And yet Yeshua spoke and rebuked certain Pharisees for this very thing. When he said very well, you clean the outside of your cups, but the inside is filthy. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear, for your hands are full of blood. These verses have sometimes been used by some to say, well, see, God didn't like the Sabbath and the festivals anyway. You know what? We don't have to keep them anymore because God says right here he never even liked them. But of course, that is obviously a very clear misreading and misunderstanding of what God is truly saying. What God is saying is he hates the mixture of the holy and the profane. The idea that I can keep Sabbath and yet harbor a secret sin in my heart. The idea that I can eat clean and yet gossip and have hatred towards a brother and a sister. The question I would like to pose and submit before you today is this. Are we truly keeping Torah if our hearts are so far from our Father's heart? Does it matter if we can keep Sabbath perfectly? If we can keep the festivals on the most perfect calendar date in the most perfect way? if our hearts are at odds with our Father's heart. 
Yeshua addresses this in Mark 7. And he said, What comes out of a man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a man. It all begins with our hearts. So how can we walk in freedom from these lies that we've believed and even have allowed to shape the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, and the way we see God? The way we find freedom is through surrender. Surrender as we go to the Father and say, Father, show me my blind spots. Show me the lies that I've believed and I haven't even realized they were lies. I thought they were my own thoughts, right? I thought they were what I was thinking about myself. But Father, show me what is unclean, the things that I've allowed in my heart and in my life that are not holy. Father, rid me of what is profane. I desire to be washed clean, to be holy in your sight, to be clean in your sight. Go to the Father in humility and repent of any of these things that you have allowed even unconsciously to creep in. And the next thing is put on your armor. Put on the armor of God because we are in a battle. Like Yeshua in the wilderness, when Satan came to him to tempt him, to say his lies, Yeshua responded like this. It is written. He rebuked Satan with the word of God. We have to remember that we live in a voice-activated world. When God created the world back in Genesis, what did he do? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. When you speak, your words have power. Will you speak words of life, or will you speak words of death? Remember what scripture says, that power, the power of life and death, is in the power of the tongue. And that the tongue, though such a small member of the body, is even capable of setting whole forests ablaze. So will you speak life or death over yourself? Will you speak life or death over others? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 We need to remember that while we can only see a physical realm, there is also a spiritual realm. You are not alone. And there are battles being fought that you cannot see. But as scripture says, God fights on your behalf. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 this is something we can only do through Yeshua and through the power of his Holy Spirit enabling us. So why does Satan come at us with all of these lies? Well, the answer is simple. Because you are a threat to his kingdom. Men, you are a threat to his kingdom. Studies have shown that when a man comes to faith and gets on fire for God, more than 85% of the time the family also comes along and comes to faith as well. 
And likewise for women. Just like I mentioned earlier, the enemy has found a way to silence more than half of the human population for more than 2,000 years. But also because we as women have a special gift of being the bearers of the next generation. We see how much the enemy hates the young, hates the children. We had the example of Pharaoh. What did the enemy do? But through Pharaoh to kill all the newborns. Through Herod to kill all the newborns. We see it today. The killing of newborns. The enemy hates the next generation. And we as women are those who bear that next generation. And that is a beautiful and a powerful gift. But it is not limited to only physical and biological next generation that the enemy hates. It is a spiritual next generation. The Bible says to be fruitful and multiply. But anytime you disciple that young woman, when you speak life into that young boy's life and you speak hope, when you go to someone who is in need and you give them the message of Yeshua, you are being fruitful and multiplying spiritually. And this is a calling that anyone can do, male, female, young, old, single, married. But this is what Satan hates, and this is a threat to his kingdom. The enemy's whole goal is to make us forget who we are, to forget our identity in Yeshua and Messiah. And of course, we see that in our culture today, especially with our young people. We see it even in our churches, to forget who God has called us to be, young or old, single or married. Man or woman, you each have a calling and a powerful purpose given to you by the Father and your identity as his son and his daughter. But the enemy knows that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand, so he'll get us so busy tearing ourselves down and tearing others down that we'll be so busy doing this, we'll be too distracted to build up the Father's kingdom. We'll be too busy making our own messes and fighting our own battles in our flesh instead of fighting the actual enemy. And his greatest lie is this that we don't have to deal with any of his lies or any of his attacks or any of those secret sins that we've been sort of you know, hiding under the rug in our lives so long as we look clean on the outside. So long as what everyone else sees looks good. It's time to rebuke those lies. It's time to pick up your sword. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's time to be like Yeshua in the wilderness. It is written. Satan says, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You're too far gone. God has forgotten you. But God says something very different. God says you are valuable, that he sent his son to redeem you from bondage to sin and death, to give you new life, that God sees you as his child, that God sees you as his handiwork. He sees you as dead to sin, but raised with Messiah, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, as part of a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Satan says it's okay to be lukewarm, but Yeshua says, follow me. Walk as I walked, love as I loved. Put on your armor and be filled with my Holy Spirit. Experience freedom and healing yourself and then take that freedom and healing to others. To spread my kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven.
So when you feel overwhelmed by the stresses and by the pressures that are going on in your life right now, remember that God is holding you up. God has not forgotten you. You are valuable, you are worthy, you are called with a great and beautiful purpose, you are a son and daughter of the King. When you feel exhausted and drained, remember God is holding you up. Yeshua came to break every chain, to heal the brokenhearted and to crush every lie. Your identity is not found in any of the lies that we've talked about today, in any of the attacks that Satan has made against you. Your identity is found in Yeshua alone. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. It's time to walk in freedom. Shalom.